Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, I am Chauncey DeVega. You may recognize my voice from Ring of Fire Radio with Mike Papantonio, the BBC, Sirius XM, or the Tom Hartman Radio Show. And you may have read some of my essays at places like Salon and Alternet. I would like to thank all of you for listening to, downloading, tweeting, and sharing the eponymously named podcast known as the Chauncey DeVega Show. And they ran a story by somebody named Chauncey DeVega. Quote, I find black garbage pail kids, black conservatives, fascinating. That's just unbelievable, you know. He goes by the name of Chauncey DeVega. You know, I've been called Uncle Tom, Oreo, sellout, shameless. But this is a new one. Well, let's talk now to Chauncey DeVega. As my man Chauncey DeVega of the blog We Are Respectable Negroes says, I have author and blogger Chauncey DeVega here with us. I would like to welcome all of you to this, the first podcast episode of the year 2015, here on the Chauncey DeVega Show. Where does the time go? <laughs> and when I ask that, I think to myself, man, where, do, where does the time go must be the second most banal question next to what have you been up to lately? I want to thank everybody again who has supported the podcast series. Our last episode with Tim Wise did very, very well. I'm putting this stuff on YouTube. It's been essential, and Tim Wise was such a great guest. So if you haven't listened to that last episode, which ran in the third week or so of December, sort of my informal Hanukkah, Christmas, Festivus gift to all of you, do seek it out. Got a lot of kind emails about it. And I also want to start the year off again by thanking all the friends of ChaunceyDeVega.com. We've gone there. We had, again, a very successful year. They say that blogging is dying, but our website keeps on going. So that's always fun, and I want to thank all of you. And I want to thank, again, all the kind people who donated to the fundraiser for ChaunceyDeVega.com. And we are Respectable Negroes and the podcast series known as the Chauncey DeVega Show. I went home for the holidays for a week or so. I want to send some love out to Mom. Saw Mom. That was nice. Always nice to see Mom. Had some good pizza. Went to Modern Pizza in New Haven. Peppies and Sally's line was too long. And yes, Modern Pizza does use canned mushrooms, as wife of Bill the Lizard pointed out. And, and they do lose points for that. But it was a hell of a lot better than the monstrosity of cheese and bread they call deep dish pizza here in Chicago. I just call it a dish of vomit. Growing up in New Haven, the home of Louis Lunch, greatest hamburgers in America, Sally's and Peppy's Pizza, and even great spots like the late Broadway Pizza. Now closed, unfortunately, as Yale University expands its tentacles all across New Haven, destroying everything that has made New Haven great in terms of food and personality. And I'll be talking about that, actually, with a guest who still is in New Haven, the Elm City. He's a journalist uh, in one of the future episodes to be recorded for the podcast series known as The Chauncey Vegas Show. So, with no further ado, Jack Hamilton, Slate.com, pop music expert. And he and I chop it up and go back and forth about the notorious B.I.G., hip-hop, our love affair with the music, teaching and scholarship, and how the color line is complicating how we think about popular music in the 21st and 20th centuries. I do think you will enjoy the conversation. Who shot ya? Separate the weak from the ops. Leap hard to creep them Brooklyn streets. It's on, nigga. Fuck all that bickering beef. I can hear sweat trickling down your cheek. Your heartbeat sound like 
Jaguar's feet Thundering, shaking the concrete Then the shit stopped when I followed the plot Neighbors called the cops, said they heard mad shots Saw me in the drop, three and a quarter Slaughter, electrical tape around the door Hello Jack, on behalf of the listeners and fans and readers of ChaunceyDeVega.com and We Are Respectable Negroes I just want to take time to thank you for agreeing to appear on the podcast And sharing very generously of your time, it's much appreciated I'm happy to be here so, the universe is funny, and I was reading Slate, oh, in September, Slate.com, great website, and I came upon your article on the 20th anniversary of Notorious B.I.G.'s Ready to Die, and I had two immediate thoughts. One is, my God, I got old. It's been 20 years, because I remember actually going to the record store and buying two CDs. They're immediately dating myself again. <laughs> uh, Ready to Die and Craig Mack's inaugural release, and I remember getting those two CDs, running for the bus in New Haven, Connecticut, right near Yale University, right by the green. Mm-hmm. I tripped in the street. Miracle I wasn't run over by the bus. The, the Craig Mack CD fell and shattered. <laughs> and I got, which is very sort of a, you know, metaphorical for his yeah, career. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> I got big. I ran home, got on the bus. Because, again, we knew Biggie. Again, we'll talk about sort of, you know, mixtapes and, and hip-hop culture in the 90s. I knew him from The Source. I remember reading about him. I knew him from Mary J. Blige. A friend of mine who lived in New York had actually gotten me one of his underground mixtapes. And Biggie was so special because with the few verses he had, he sounded like no one before. And I just knew I had something magical. And I remember running home, putting the CD in the multiple uh, disc CD player my father had spent like 500 bucks on, just listening to Biggie over and over and over and over again. So what brought you to write about the Notorious B.I.G. number one? And what were some of the responses to the piece? You know, as you're probably aware, in the last year or two, uh, maybe maybe even more, uh, there's been this kind of run on 20th anniversaries in, in hip-hop. You know, they're just this past year, I mean, obviously 1994 was a huge year, but, you know, you have this uh, outcast doing a 20th anniversary tour. There's a big, lavish 20, 20th anniversary reissue of Illmatic. Last year, obviously, there was a ton about the 20th anniversary of... Uh, 36 Chambers. I actually wrote something about that back when it happened, too. Part of it was that I hadn't actually been super aware that there was the same amount of, of coverage, or, or at least just that there, there wasn't a concerted PR push behind the 20th anniversary of the album. Um, and it seemed like a big one to sort of let slip by. But it also, I, I think I was inspired to write about it um, just because of the fact that it's, it strikes me as an monumentally important rap album i mean i think partly largely because you know and i say in the piece like i don't i don't actually think that it's the greatest rap album of all time i don't really have an an answer to that question but i i don't think it's ready to die probably in in the lengthy conversation of great album great rap albums of all time i think it's arguably possibly the most important just because of the fact that i think that you know it marks the emergence of, of biggie who i think is really certainly the most important MC of the last 20 years in the music and probably the most important MC, period. I mean, just in terms of the the level of respect that his name still commands uh, sort of in the music and in the culture more broadly. And he's also, uh, you know, ascended to a really uh, high level of kind of American cultural iconography. I mean, just the fact that, you know, just last year or whenever the um, biopic came out, which was awful, but... (laughs) (laughs) a major Hollywood biopic about about a rapper who was shot when he was 24 years old. I mean, that's a, you know, when you think about the people that get major Hollywood biopics made about them, you know, you're looking at Ray Charles, Johnny Cash, I guess Hendrix now, although sort of in that movie, <laughs> achieved a level of kind of cultural visibility that, that very, very few rappers had before or since. 
the early death and um, and the issues that surrounded that make him a particularly compelling figure. And it's also, you know, just with like this past summer and sort of issues of, of violence, specifically the killing of uh, young African-American males in urban contexts, it was, I don't know, there was something about that anniversary that felt very potent and felt like it needed to be written about. And the response to the piece, yeah, it was good. I mean, it was, you know, it was positive. I mean, you get the, you know, you get the typical, like, you know, people coming after you on Twitter, yelling at you for, for not writing about Tupac or, <laughs> or, you know, like the old school people who are mad that, you know, you, that you called uh, Biggie the greatest MC of all time over Rakim or, you know, whoever else. But yeah, in general, it was quite a positive response. Like, what was the most interesting, because I was looking over the hundreds of comments, because I'm always fascinated, you know, talking to students, looking online the deep passion and energy that people expend in arguing about these points. Well, number one, you have to come up with some objective criteria, but how do you have objective criteria about subjective taste? But my whole point is, when I talk about these issues is, you know, who are your top 10 MCs? Mm -hmm. Um, Are you a tourist in hip-hop, or do you have a history? Have you expended the time and energy to critically think about popular culture in general? Because a lot of this stuff is just bloviating. So I was looking over the comments on your piece, and number one, I was dismayed by sort of the hostility Mm -hmm. Um, that some of the comments channeled because you dared to suggest that, number one, Biggie is an icon in American music. Yeah. And then a lot of folks pointed out, and, you know, it'd be great if you could clarify this, how you formulated this conclusion, that Biggie, you know, belongs in the same breath as Dylan, as the Beatles, as other icons of music. Part of it, too, is that, you know, I think Slate is, I, I love, and I love writing for Slate, but it's, it's this is not a, a sort of typical Slate article topic-wise. You know, I think uh, Slate's audience skews maybe not older than biggie i mean because you know at this point people in their you know 30s and 40s certainly i mean it's like at this point yeah it's 20 it's 20 years later yeah i mean i think that there it's still i think the slate readership is more of a kind of classic rock centric uh kind of demographic or you know interpret that as you will yeah i mean like you know when i've written things for them in the past i mean i wrote i wrote a really long piece for them over the summer about Led Zeppelin that was probably better received. I didn't read the comments on that one either. <laughs> but, uh, you know, probably better received among, among Slate's readership, just because I think it's a, maybe might be more in the comfort zone of some of, of some people who are inclined to leave comments on internet pieces. I, I mean, in answer to the question of what, you know, why I would put him in the class of names of people like Dylan and, and the Beatles, and, you know, I think I mentioned... Aretha Franklin, and mm-hmm. I mean, when you look at the the importance that he holds in his genre, and the, and the importance that his genre increasingly holds in sort of modern modern American modern global culture, it's kind of undeniable uh, his importance. I think. I mean, I think that largely considered, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say it's universal. Like if you asked the, the polled serious hip hop fans on who the who the greatest and most influential and revered MC of all time is it that's he's probably the answer that you would get from a lot of them and I think that that is you know just in terms of the the level to which hip-hop has ascended I mean it's you know the fact that he died so young puts him in a different category than someone than someone like Jay-Z who's obviously had a had a much longer and more prolific career and his Jay-Z is doing things culturally as a rapper that we've never really seen someone from from the music do before, you know, he's, he's, he's at the White House, he's, you know, hanging out with billionaires and mayors and things like that, which, you know, Biggie never got to do. And it's, I mean, I think that that makes his sort of icon all the more unimpeachable. The fact that, you know, you never had to sit through Biggie making a, you know, album like Magna Carta Holy Grail, which was... <laughs> 
for some of us, not Jay-Z's finest moment. You know, you don't want to hear, you know, some of us feel a little uncomfortable about the fact that now Jay-Z is in his mid-40s and rapping about his art collection, you know? Like, it's particularly for, for people who who love hip hop and take hip hop extremely seriously, uh, he's absolutely on the level of some of those, some of those other icons. And, you know, as the years go on, I think he'll continue to, that status will continue to be more and more recognized. And you hit on something there in terms of thinking about one's career. Is it better to die young and never have had the opportunity to make that disappointing album? Or even think about, you know, with movie stars who've died young. Sure. So, you know, you get put on that pantheon, you get elevated to the level of artist when you haven't had a chance to grapple with failure. You know, several years ago, I had pitched a book proposal to the 33 and a third series on the Notorious B.I.G. And I was sort of the victim of bad timing because they shortly thereafter the series ended, so they weren't really accepting anything new except what was already in the pipeline. Because Biggie, for me, is this fascinating figure, you know, talking about Ready to Die, is, number one, an example through metaphor and storytelling, the the bad black man, bad Negro caricature slash Mm -hmm. cultural figure, thinking about this post-civil rights moment of black hyper-thug masculinity, the black counter-public. Because you can listen to, and we'll talk about this, Ready to Die is a complete album. Yeah. You know, it's complete thematically. It's complete in terms of thinking about characters and storytelling and development and closure. Because, again, thinking about 20 years, you and I are roughly the same age, a few years apart. But if you're 17, 16, 18, or even 20, this is, quote, unquote, old school. And our old school was Run DMC and, you know, Grandmaster Flash and the Sugar Hill Gang. So you have this whole generational tension. But I'm always surprised by how, number one, a lot of students who claim to be, quote, unquote, hip-hop heads, unfortunately, have never heard of Big Yelling. It was Pac. Mm-hmm. And they immediately dismiss Big. And two, when you actually say, you know, this is a text, and we're going to read and analyze this cultural object as a text, how so many of them say, oh, my God, as you pointed out, this is really related to many contemporary issues of race, the color line, class, and identity, even though the storytelling is exaggerated when you try to reconcile the truth of Biggie's life with the fiction that he created through the Notorious B.I.G. So when you actually talk to students or in general um, in your own classes about popular music and cultural studies and so on, how do you make that negotiation? I mean, are they challenged to begin with to take this seriously or are the students self-selecting? Because I'm also thinking about the comment section again in response to your own music writing on Slate and the various topics you cover. Why do you think people are so impassioned about popular music and arguing these points of taste? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think like, I mean, this is always a challenge, you know, as I'm sure you're, you're aware. Uh, I mean, teaching, teaching popular culture is, can be difficult with students because extremely rewarding. You know, it's something that students go into already thinking that, for the most part, already thinking that they like and they're excited to talk about it. But it, that can also be kind of a challenge, you know, getting people to, you know, some people don't want to think super critically about popular music because they just want to enjoy it <laughs> or something or you know they don't understand that i mean that thinking critically about something doesn't have to detract from your enjoyment of it it can actually enhance it so i think that you know and it can be a challenge for to get some people to think about and i mean this i guess i would say there's a parallel between the classroom and say something like the readership on on a website like it's to to get someone to take something seriously that for whatever reason they're they're a little bit reluctant to take seriously whether that's because they harbor prejudices against it or the flip side that that they're such a fan of it that they don't want to step outside of just the pure kind of like this just gives me pleasure and i don't start deconstructing what what the components of that pleasure are i i I don't know i think that um it's certainly a challenge it's interesting that you you mentioned the thing about Pac and biggie in terms of the students because i actually one of the things that didn't also inspired me to, to write this piece was that last year I was teaching, uh, I was actually at the University of Colorado for a year. I was teaching a popular music class and 
I was really struck that when we got to hip hop, the juicy was like the one, and this was a class full, I mean, at the University of Colorado, it was like, you know, a predominantly white student body in that class. Everyone in the class knew Juicy. And, you know, like a lot of them didn't know Illmatic. A lot of them didn't know, you know, a lot of other stuff that I think of as being very canonical from that period. I mean, they certainly knew Tupac as well, but it was like, I was shocked by just, they all knew Juicy, which to me was kind of amazing because of the fact that Juicy itself is like a really insidery piece of music and was when it came out in 1994. You know, this is like, there's name dropping of people who they, you know, even, you know, if you, you know, in 94, I mean, for me, I was, I was 15 when Ready to Die, to Die came out. I, I just turned 15 and I, you know, I didn't know who half the people who he was name dropping on that track. I didn't know who, who Brucey B was. <laughs> Brucey B, Kid Capri. Funkmaster Flex, Love Bug Starsky. I don't want to make people suffer through my Biggie impersonation. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, I didn't know who Love Bug Starsky was. You know, I mean, it's like I knew who the big ones were. Yeah, I mean, it's but they, but so that's kind of amazing. That song that that even for him, I think, was really a kind of love letter to this culture that was this very specific New York hip hop past that was even by that point was kind of vanishing i mean even you know in 94 hip-hop was obviously already huge business chronic had come out i mean i remember the chronic from those days i mean the chronic was on the radio everywhere you know this was like this idea that sort of like that hip-hop blows up in the mid 90s isn't really true you know it had blown up a lot a lot earlier than that you know even in a sort of like broad popular culture sense so in in some ways like juicy itself is really a throwback track that's why digital is great we're two friends at the virtual bar having a conversation over these internets about the notorious big and music and pop culture so it's all good but i was thinking too you know one of the foundational credos in cultural studies popular music studies popular culture studies more generally however you want to bracket it is that we as i said we live through and by popular culture but it's also about memory and pleasure and being part of a certain community in a certain moment and the relative emotions that are associated with your moment of experience with a given example or cultural text. So I'm thinking about, you know, the example from of Biggie. Mm-hmm. So I remember, like I said, getting the mixtapes. I'm from Connecticut. I had relatives in New York, Staten Island, and going down to New York on you know, either driving or taking the Metro North train and getting, you know, the physical act of purchasing a mixtape, which is now lost because everything is downloaded. And we can talk about how that the transition to digital from analog, I think, and I'm sure others would likely agree and some would disagree, has damaged the culture of collecting. And not to say that these mixtapes should be fetish objects, but there really is no cost associated with attain- obtaining insider knowledge. Right. So it was a lot of fun. I remember hearing Big saying, my God, I've heard these people on the radio. Yeah. I've seen them on mixtapes. I've seen them on you know early versions of The Box, which was a TV network, music network in the tri-state New York area. So it really was, when I put on Ready to Die... Those are the memories that I'm channeling, saying, my God, I was there. I remember these people. I remember listening to Funkmaster Flex before he sold out, and he actually cared when he would actually DJ on Hot 97. So, I mean, you have this active memory. But for the generation of students that you and I are teaching, folks in their you know, late teens, early 20s, why do you think Juicy resonates for them? I mean, first of all, for, you know, for a variety of reasons, just sort of aesthetically, it's, it's, it's something of a perfect pop song. It's so anthemic, and it's so, uh, you know, one of the things that, one of the incredible talents of, of Biggie was the way that, I mean, he really was almost in spite of himself, an absolute pop star. I mean, he had this totally just magnetism charisma. Also, you know, had a way of, you know, for all his skills as an MC, he also thought he did actually think in terms of, of songs and stories and sort of these beyond the wordplay of kind of these whole 
narratives. And so I think that a song like Juicy is something that even if you're not super familiar with rap music, kind of lodges itself in your ear and just, I mean, it just completely resonates. Part of it, too, is that, you know, I think that there's a lot of, you know, like with every younger generation, I think the point where, you know, this sort of authenticity of the past becomes kind of fetishized. I mean, you see this in like, I mean, I don't want to suggest that hip hop is like currently undergoing its own sort of folk revival or something. But I'm always shocked, like, like a rapper like Joey Badass, who's, I think, 19. Like, I mean, that guy's music, I mean, it's like, I love his stuff, but it's like, it kind of sounds like he hasn't listened to any rap made after 1999 or something. <laughs> and, um, and I think that a lot of younger hip-hop fans, and I mean, I, I say this as someone who, who teaches a lot of them, like, I mean, a lot of them have this real incredible reverence for artists and musicians who even in their like sort of height of popularity didn't have what they I mean I, I had a student who told me recently told me that she hasn't she can't listen to any hip-hop it was like this weird categorical statement she said she couldn't she hasn't been able to listen to any hip-hop since Jay Dilla died and I was like <laughs> Jay Dilla died when you were like 11 you know <laughs> and what did she say when you said that to her she turn bright red and say, I was just hyperbole because I'm making a claim on authenticity? Or she's like, oh, you're right. I haven't listened to anything since right, I was 11. Right, right. I guess she, I guess she was, I, I sort of phrased that wrong. She said, I guess she claims that she doesn't listen, to, she doesn't listen to any hip hop made after that. You know, it's a weird, weird thing. I think in the same way that for us, because I have those same memories, like I grew up in Boston, but I definitely, you know, I had friends who were, uh, were from New York and, you know, listening to like, DJ Clue tapes and you know they would tape like cool I mean I remember the first time I heard Jay-Z well before Reasonable Doubt was it before Hawaiian Sophie I can't remember it would have been man when what what year would that have been 95 year Reasonable Doubt, Reasonable Doubt is 96 yeah so it probably was Hawaiian Sophie because that was also his first video single on the box younger kids you know they hear these stories and there is something to it that they want to um they kind of want to get back to that or something or like, you know, it, it takes on this kind of mythic thing for them, you know, much in the way that I think that, you know, I think back to like when I was a kid and hearing the way that certain, you know, not all older people, but certain older people than me talked about music and kind of feeling like, like I wish that I could have been. Yeah. I mean, in hip hop specifically, you know, it's like I remember hanging out with older, older dudes and thinking like, wow, you know, it isn't what it used to be. <laughs> I mean, and every generation probably says that, those young whippersnappers. Because, again, we're dealing with issues of youth culture and memory. Right. And I saw Jeff Chang. He gave a great talk here in Chicago about his new book. And he was talking about something you and I probably agree about, this idea of sort of fetishizing the quote-unquote golden age of hip-hop yeah. or fetishizing and rewriting the circumstances around hip-hop's founding. So we have this mythic founding time with Bambada and Cool Herc and all the other brothers and sisters creating hip-hop before it was hip-hop, but then we leave out the fact that the drug culture, the gang culture, the robbery, the violence, and a lot of bad music was made then, too. So I'm thinking, you know, because you write about more than just hip-hop, and you mentioned earlier, so in that same time, time period, we had Illmatic, we had Tribe, we had Big, we had 36 Chambers, right? They're all coming up on their 20th anniversaries. Yeah. What do you think in terms of the idea that it's more difficult now? And you can correct me you know, if it's just a problem in hip-hop or pop music more generally. In terms of making complete albums, is it just the music business has changed, so you're not going to see complete albums like that? Because on one hand, I say, okay, maybe we don't have a golden age of hip-hop. Yeah. But as cultural critics and as fans, we should still be able to articulate the essential differences, not talking about pleasure, 
between you know Rockham and Big and their deft lyricism and artistry and metaphor use and cadence and meter and rhyme control versus someone who I just find utterly talentless and despicable like Chief Keith here in Chicago in drill music, which I just as a hip hop fan, I'm like, I don't know what that is. I know yeah. 12 and 13 and 14 year olds like it. But it's not hip-hop as I understand it in terms of thinking about those criteria as the basis by which we judge the art. How do we negotiate that? In terms of the album thing and, you know, where we're, where we're at now, I mean, I think a lot of that has to do with, I mean, you know, just the music industry has just been in such a kind of prolonged state of crisis. No one really knows what, like, where even it is, where music is in terms of kind of media. Something that's been really interesting to me in the past however many years is shift back from because uh, you know pop music really until until the 60s really not until the 70s was such a singles driven medium start to see that move with like big shift that's often cited is Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band which comes out in 67 and the Beatles didn't put didn't release a single behind it I mean which which they were able to do only because they were the Beatles as the 70s move on the album becomes kind of the artistic benchmark of authenticity real artists make albums and obviously, this is something that's also sort of inherited from from jazz and sort of older forms. But early hip hop was was much more of a singles driven medium than, than than an album driven medium. I mean, I think you have this really interesting golden age of the album of the hip hop album that I mean, I don't want to like. I'm just sort of speaking off the top of my head, but it's like you know, I think it's really sort of mid to late '80s till the late '90s. You have this like glut of just absolutely classic hip-hop albums in terms of like kind of you know cohesive just long-form lps and then now it has gotten kind of back to like maybe not single driven is kind of the wrong word because it's not like people are 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 going out and buying 45 or something like that but there is something that like it's become a lot quicker it's much in the way that in the 60s there was such an emphasis put on kind of the prolificness of artists i mean one of the things that I find really interesting about that period is that, you know, you look at the output of someone like the Beatles or, or the Rolling Stones or, you know, God, like somewhere like Motown. It's just insane, you know, how much how much music was just being put out constantly. And and then I think people got away from that where for a while, I mean, particularly in a genre like rock music, where someone like a band like U2 will take like 10 years in between recording albums which I don't think is great for music. You know, I think that music is something that belongs to, should always belong to kind of the young and the hungry and the people who are, who are out there. But yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, to, to answer the question about the, the album thing, I don't know. I mean, I wonder which young artists are putting a lot of stock in creating albums. I imagine that some of them actually know that some of them are, just having heard them talk about it and stuff like that. I mean, not to keep coming back to this, but, you know, someone like, like Joey Badass or someone like Action Bronson. You know, it's like Action Bronson has still not yet released a, an official album. Or J Electronica. Right, exactly, exactly. And I think that and the reason for all for this is that there's this Action Bronson, I think, wants when he does release his official album for it to be monumentally great. You could argue that he should just put something out. <laughs> I mean, but that's the thing. It's like, he, I mean, he does put out a lot. You know, I mean, like all these guys are sort of, are prolific in their own ways. One of the problems with it is that, uh, like, you know, it's like albums don't sell anymore. I mean, say, to go back to an album like My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, which, you know, has received critical raves and, you know, produced a, a number of, of hits. That album didn't sell that many copies. I think it went platinum, but I don't think it went double platinum. Like, I think that Kanye West's sales figures in front of me, but I would absolutely bet that college dropout and, and late registration and probably graduation all sold more copies 
uh, probably far more copies in my beautiful dark twisted fantasy. And I think that that largely has to do with the fact that like, yeah, people aren't buying CDs anymore. Do you think folks are overstating the case again, going back to, I don't know if it was Bordeaux or somebody, one of the, the contemporaries of Bordeaux thinking about the relationship between the means of mechanical production and the type of art that's produced. So a lot of folks are saying, you know what, with the transition from analog to digital, it's number one changed listeners and users and creators' experiences. Do you think that's overstated in terms of its impact on the music market? Again, just being practical. So when you can have 10,000 songs in your iPod or on your telephone, that's a different experience in terms of the relationship between, you know, back in the day, not too long ago in the 70s, you know, my father was telling me how they used to have turntables in cars and you'd have these gyroscopes and these elaborate gyroscopes to keep the record from skipping and you could only bring so many records in the car you'd have one crate maybe so you were actually invested in that music in a different way so i mean is the digital analog divide and how it's changed the music business is that overstated i don't know you know it's it's a great question i like i guess the the short answer is that i that i don't know that we know yet so i one of the things that's interesting is that you know vinyl records i think at this point are almost never going to go anywhere. I mean, it's like, I think vinyl, you know, I mean, this is a cliche to say this now, but it's like, you know, vinyl, I think is more popular now than it was 20 years ago. I mean, part of that, you know, is obviously that it sounds fantastic. There is an aura of, of kind of authenticity to it, have, have value as aesthetic objects right. in a way that, that CDs and cassettes never did. It's drastically shifted the way that we, um, you know, the way that we listen to music. The, the fact that now we can carry around, I mean, my iPod, you know, I have one of those like 160 gigabyte iPods and it's, it's pretty close to full. I think I have like 30,000 songs on it, which is insane. You know, like, it's just like, I mean, there's, there's literally music on my iPod that I've never heard before. Um, and it's, you know, one day I will hear it, but it's like, I mean, it's, it's a, I actually didn't, I was one, I was someone who was something of a holdout in terms of buying an MP3 player, you know, back. And I didn't, get one until the mid 2000s and what caused me to get one was that i was someone who would bring those big case logic books of cds with me wherever i went you know i had a disc man or you know like <laughs> the good old days a disc right exactly and i remember i went on a trip at one point but was actually in memphis tennessee and rented a uh, rent a car had the car for like five days uh, went back to New York where I was living at the time and realized that I had left literally 500 CDs in the rental car. And <laughs> I was able to get them back. Like, I mean, luckily, but it was in that moment, I was like, oh my God, you know, like this is insane that like I'm carrying this. That I, I mean, and that is insane when you think about it, but it's like, you know, I had that sort of, oh, you know, I'm going on a long car trip. Like, I'm just going to bring as much music with me as I possibly can, because who knows what I'm going to want to listen to. But, you know, that did, it caused you to have, like, a sort of tactile relationship with music. You know, I would be really interested to, and this is something I always try to get out of my students, is, like, you know, what it's like. I'm I'm very interested in sort of media and formats and stuff. Like, I don't know if you've read, you know, Jonathan Stern's recent book about uh, the MP3 and and his sort of idea that, that no one in music and sort of media studies we don't do enough with talking about histories of formats i'm like interested in hearing from my students like you know what's it like to grow up in a world where this is kind of the only way of no way of consuming music that you know you know like it's like hard because they don't know how to answer the question because they don't know any other way (laughs) i don't know i i I do think that it'll probably do something to sort of listener subjectivities and you know consumer subjectivities and all that stuff yeah with this kind of move from 
from analog to digital or from, you know, like sort of actual material music as a material product versus music as a kind of something that exists in the cloud. In terms of the music industry, I think it's, it's had both it's good and it's bad. And, you know, with, with the music like hip hop, I think in a lot of ways it's opened doors for people and scenes and communities that, you know, previously uh, would not have kind of found each other. But at the same time, you know, it's like it has really thrown quote, the kind of conventional music industry into into real disarray. I mean, you know, a lot's been talked about how, you know, most record labels have, they have no interest in sort of like, you know, what used to be A&R. You know, they're like artists don't get developed anymore. The artists, you know, artists don't get resources allocated to them. A handful do, you know, it's like, I mean, someone, if you're Kanye West, you can get your label to pay for what you want. But it's like, you know, for the most part, you know, you're just not getting that kind of attention given to artists. And, uh, you know, that and this is all, all this stuff are kind of symptoms of the same of the same issue. Thinking too about the pluses and minuses, you know, no story is only one sided. So digital media portability globalization, the idea that you can be the, somebody laying down a track in Europe, then send it to a, to a lyricist in Algeria, and then someone in Japan will get a hold of it. So, I mean, it's made the world a lot smaller, but as you pointed out with A&R, you have this question about artist development. You also have sort of thinking about these questions of, as you said, resources and timing. But I'm really fascinated, you can tell by the question, by this idea of the relationship to the fetish object. That how does, as you pointed out, user experience change when the object itself changes? Do you worship the record in the same way that you worship a song and analyze a song on a telephone? But you're a scholar of American music, cultural studies, American studies. How did you have that light bulb moment? Or I'll state it differently. How did you find yourself in this career path? For the listeners out there, you know, some young undergraduate or a high school student thinking about going to college and grad school. How did you find this career path where you're able to write for popular publications like Slate, but also teach at the University of Virginia? Sort of first background is as a musician. Um, and I was, um, I started playing, well, I started playing music when I was like five or six. I started playing music really seriously when I was in high school. I was playing in bands and kind of gigging a fair amount when I was in high school. I played piano and organ and other keyboard instruments. And then when I was 18, I actually got a gig with like a, a full-time touring recording band that pre-existed before me. I was I got hired into it and did that for a couple of years. What was the name of the band? Uh, the band was called the Mike Welch Band. They no longer exist anymore. It was sort of like a R- blues R&B kind of roots rock band. So I did that for a couple of years. That was in the late 90s. And then I went back to school to, co- like, you know, I kind of decided that it would be a good thing to get a college degree. <laughs> so I went back to school. And then actually, uh, I, went, I went to NYU as an undergrad and kind of almost by accident sort of fell into music journalism. I, like, I mean, I'd say by accident in the sense that I had gone back to school and within uh, a a friend of a friend was working for a a now defunct hip hop magazine called One World. Do you remember that magazine? Vaguely. It sounds familiar. It had been started by Russell Simmons. Basically, like I think as I understood it, Russell Simmons kind of for a brief moment wanted to make a magazine that would compete with Vibe and then basically lost interest in it. But I knew so. I had a friend of a friend of mine was um, was the managing editor of it, and so she gave me an internship there when I was in college. Like, I mean, I had no experience. They were just looking for people to do stuff. But you know, I was into obviously 
a huge hip hop fan and just was like, cool, that sounds like a fun uh, thing to be involved with. And, you know, it was, and that sort of got me into the world of kind of thinking about writing about music. And, and so I did that for a while. I mean, not that I, I wasn't there for very long at that magazine, but then I, you know, spent a while kind of freelancing and then I got frustrated with the, I'd always been interested in music from a historical perspective as well as kind of a contemporary perspective. And I got kind of frustrated with it, that there weren't a lot of opportunities to write about music from a historical perspective in sort of mainstream media, like, you know, like freelance assignments and stuff like that. So I was complaining about that one night, I remember, to like one of my former professors from undergrad, and he suggested that I go to graduate school for American studies. Or he didn't suggest American studies. I think initially I looked at like ethnomusicology Mm -hmm. programs and stuff like that. But then, yeah, I mean, I went to, but that ultimately is what led me to graduate school. Um, And then, yeah, I mean, I was just really lucky that I had... um, I landed with PhD advisors who were super supportive of doing a project that was sort of, to this day, I mean, it's writing about popular music in in academia is not always the easiest path to take. Not something that has the same kind of uh, pedigree and and sort of disciplinary history as as a lot of other things. I mean, because you have a lot of work to do because, you know, I'm in the same boat as a fellow traveler, because number one, in the hard social sciences, you have to, political science, especially sociology, you have to, number one, do the hard work to show them that popular culture matters. So you have that argument. Then you have to bring in your own interdisciplinary priors within the existing conversations in your discipline. And then you have to push that home and hope that the few folks in your boat who are competing for the even fewer number of jobs, we're not going to knock each other out. So on one hand, you'll be the person like, wow, this person does something really interesting. But then in that hiring meeting, when they look at the Vita and your letter, what about the other old guard people who are like, nah, this isn't real political science or real sociology or real American studies? You know, I've been extremely fortunate to, to land at the situation that I've landed in. But yeah, my job is, is part in American studies and part in media studies. And I'm lucky that, you know, I happened to come into this at a time that media studies at the University of Virginia was looking for someone that did, that did sound and did and did music stuff. They didn't have anyone that did it. So that made me feeling to them. And then it was an example of everything that's kind of working out. So you'd mentioned earlier, you know, your career as a music journalist and working in that space. And as I'm sure you know, from your own writing and research, one of the huge controversies, especially dealing with African-American music and ethnomusicology, is this idea of gatekeepers and who actually gets to frame the narratives and stories about black music. And probably world music and other types of music, too. So if you look at the racial geography of the music business, who owns the corporations? Yeah. Who, who, who were the A&R people? Who's deciding who gets radio airplay, et cetera, et cetera? Those folks very often don't look like the publics to which they're selling the music and certainly don't look like the artists themselves in terms of their racial or ethnic background. So, I mean, when those spaces, what was the racial geography like? Was it a same old story of white gatekeepers who are deciding what type of black music or what types of black musics are going to be considered appropriate? Because you see that a lot, and it's one of the most heated fights in terms of jazz, you know, historically, and also with hip-hop online. So, I mean, what was the racial geography like, and how do you locate some of these discussions within your own research and thinking about music and popular culture? Yeah, you know, these are questions that are sort of just constantly, constantly recurring, and they just sort of, you know, it's just kind of cycle throughout it's it's one of the kind of predominant stories of American music, kind of writ 
writ large. I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of different ways to, to sort of go about doing it. I mean, it's, I mean, a lot of it speaks to sort of a fundamental problem. I mean, like even just leaving aside for, for the, a moment the sort of the racial aspect of it, like a lot of it is, is has to do with sort of the, the fundamental difference between critics and producers of, of culture, you know, that it's like there's always this kind of this tension between who's making it and who's speaking about it, you know, and it's like who, you know, how someone is characterized and what a lot of times artists are, are not super psyched to, you know, have people sitting around interpreting their work and, you know, publishing people who write about about culture can have can wield a tremendous amount of power, oftentimes more than they think that they wield. But in terms of, yeah, I mean, in terms of the the sort of gatekeeper issue and the, and the racial side of it, I mean, it's, it's extremely tough as a white writer who writes about hip hop. I mean, it's like, I mean, and has written about hip hop for a very long time. I mean, something... I always just try to be extremely, extremely aware of my own sort of positionality and relationship to things. You know, I mean, it's like, and the idea that, you know, I, I am someone who really believes that, you know, kind of culture sort of belongs to everyone. I'm sort of like an Ellisonian in that respect. But it's like, I don't think that it necessarily belongs to everyone equally at all times. You know, I mean, this is something that you always have to be, and part of this is being a responsible journalist and a responsible critic is is being aware of your position as an outsider. And, you know, the, and, and not just a, a racial or cultural outsider, just that, you know, as a critic, you're, you, you are an outsider. You should be right. an outsider. And that's actually kind of part of being an ethical critic, um, is, is sort of maintaining that distance. As you said, the I mean, this is something that I've thought about for years, like the sort of question of like, you know, white writers who who venerate hip hop that is, or, or, you know, art that is problematic, the cultural tourism element. I mean, I always think of this as, I mean, when I was back, when I was a journalist, uh, it's kind of the heyday of, of, of Dipset. <laughs> and Dipset, I always think, I have a friend of mine who like, we, we talk about this still to this day, and we almost, I think we've, he's, both of us at the times referred to it as like the Dipset syndrome. <laughs> and it's like, that was tough because it's like, I mean, I had a lot of affection for a lot of that stuff. And I think that Dipset made some really great music, but there were definitely some white critics who who jumped on that a little too hard, you know? And this like, and this, this music that was really aggressively kind of nihilistic and kind of amoral. And, you know, and there was this kind of like this way that it was being, you know, you, and a lot of it was great, you know, like, but it was like, there was a level of kind of irony with which some people were approaching it that felt that felt uncomfortable. I don't know, you know, it's like, I mean, I remember back when I, you know, when I used to read Vice a lot in the early 2000s, the way that Vice would write about hip hop sometimes made me really uncomfortable. The white hipster fetishism thing that goes back to, you know, like back to the 40s, back to back to the 20s, yeah. you know. Even like, before look, that, I mean, the whole idea of the black culture industry. And I was thinking, too, you conjured up an image there, sort of this white hipster cultural fetishism. I wonder what Norman Mailer would say about this moment in Miley Cyrus and all these others and Izzy yeah. from Australia. But I'm thinking about, you know, those recent images. And I had a student who actually did this. I'm very forthright when I talk to students, very direct. I'm Socratic, ask a lot of questions. This young woman came in, and young white girl from the suburbs, probably upper middle class, wearing her NWA, straight out of Compton t-shirt, in, a, in our hip-hop class. And I said, number one, are you from Compton? Yeah. And number two, have you listened to that album? And she sort of pushed back. She was shocked by the director. She's like, well, it's just ironic. But I said, well, cultural tourism is problematic in any number of ways, in right. the sense that it's ironic for you, but for some folks, that's their lived experience. Totally, totally. And yeah. how do you reconcile, again, going back to pleasure 
and going back to consumption and audiences because it also works within the hip hop community. I'm sure you, you know you pointed this out in your work and talking to folk is that you have a lot of you know African American MCs in the gangster rap era, golden era of hip hop who were not poor, who were not part of the quote ghetto yeah. underclass, who had never been to jail. But they're the outsider within their own community, but they're able to play around with these cultural tropes about black hyperthug masculinity just because they're black and male. Yeah. So it works both ways, but sort of pushing that a little bit harder. Do you have any narratives or experiences in the classroom where you have students who are very resistant or because they're post-racial generation, you know, post-civil rights generation, to thinking critically about race and gender and intersectionality and music? Because the classic example I have is that hip-hop and jazz and blues are black music. Yeah. Right, if we're thinking about the standard, you know, classic formulation from Samuel Floyd and other people, sure. atonality, rhythm use, improvisation, etc. But when I bring that up, I get a remarkable amount of pushback from students, especially black students, who mm. seem to have bought into this, you know, reverse racism narrative. And my claim is not that other folk can't enjoy, participate, and produce it and yeah. consume it, but we don't have these arguments about Japanese koto drumming. Right. All right. So why do we have these arguments about black American popular music? I mean, I think what it is, is like, frankly, that, you know, I mean, I mean you know, Americans are like, can I curse on this podcast? Of course or? you can. <laughs> We're all grown ups. Curse I mean, away. Like, you know, Americans are like so fucked up when it comes to talking about race. You know, it's just like it, it, it's something that like, I think one of the problems, I mean, there's so many, I mean, there's so many answers to this question. But one of the problems is that it's so hard for many Americans to have a conversation about race that does not become... Uh, immediately assumed to be a conversation about racism, That's you know, right. so that it's like, so it becomes this thing of like, that I think students are resistant to having a conversation like that because like, they don't want to feel like they're, that it's like to acknowledge the racial context or components or, or anything that goes, you know, that goes into something is somehow to start a conversation about, about racism that's going to end it with some sort of recrimination directed at them or something like that. I mean, I think this is like, you know, that there, there is this really fundamental inability in this country to have to have sort of sophisticated conversations about this stuff. You know, that it's like that you can have a conversation about Miley Cyrus and about it or, you know, Iggy Azalea and issues of cultural appropriation and issues of cultural tourism and, and appropriations of various ideas, of, you know, racial fantasies, all like that, that don't have to then end with saying, and this is why you're racist for listening to this. I mean, this to me is, you know, a, a book that obviously um, extremely influential on me. It was, you know, Eric Lott's Love and Theft about minstrelsy. And one of the things that I think is really miraculous about Love and Theft as a book is that it's about, the, it's, it's a book about absolutely horrifically racial, cultural, racist cultural practice that actually manages to not be a book just about racism. You know, it's a book sure. about how race inflects culture. And it's a, it's a book about race and culture that, and about an incredibly racist cultural practice that isn't, that, that, that is not just about racism. You know, that it's about how these sort of, how culture impacts the way that we consider these sort of categories and these, and these ideas that we have about what it means to be white and black in America, or what it meant to be white and black in America in the 1840s, you know, like it's like, and so these are, when you, when you bring it to students in this current day, yeah, I mean, I don't, I mean, this isn't an original observation, but it's like, I think that for whatever reason, I think that having an African-American president has actually, I think we're weirdly living in like, you know, the most racist time in this country in the past, you know, what, 30 years or something. I mean, it's, it's like unbelievable to me, the sort of resurgence of a really open white hostility 
that was not even that wasn't didn't feel like it was present under Clinton or certainly not under George W. Bush. You know, this sort of like crazy white defensive resentment kind of backlash mentality that's that's, that's extremely disturbing. It infuses a lot of kind of cultural discourse around these these issues. I mean, I also think to be to to defend the students a little bit. I mean, not to like yeah, by all means. Yeah. You know, all uh, one of the things that I try to do in, in my own work is is treat all of these sort of all these instances guilty of this because I just said this a few minutes ago that you know this is sort of like repeating cycle. It is a repeating cycle, but it's also not a repeating. All of these instances are are, are sort of historically specific, and they're all you know even just something like like hip hop. And the sort of, it's like someone like Iggy Azalea is very weird because it's like, you know, she's Australian and she's, she's, she's in this, you know, like, and she's in this very specific kind of Southern hip hop thing. And, you know, hip hop itself is a, is a music that unlike the blues or, you know, unlike 50s R&B that gets co-opted into white rock and roll music, it's like hip hop has this extremely strong Caribbean strand to it that was, I mean, like hip hop is really a product of a very, very specific set of historical circumstances and a very, very specific kind of alignment of cultures that hadn't actually really happened in the United States previously to this. I mean, hip-hop is as much, I think, really about, you know, the, uh, you know, decolonization of Jamaica and sort of the, the aftermath of colonialism in Jamaica as it is about, you know, sort of the post-industrial condition of the Bronx. I mean, like, all of these things are sort of feeding into it. You know, it's a, it's a long, long story. I love the work of, you know, someone like Samuel Floyd and stuff like that. But I do think that there's been this tendency to sort of flatten out narratives of African-American music and see sort of everything that happens in African-American music as being this sort of unbroken trajectory that either, you know, fits into like a metric like the ring shout or, you know, something a vague sort of idea of call and response or, you know, what signification theory. Like there's all this sort of, you know, there's so much diversity in it. I had to write a essay when Gil Scott Heron passed away for a transition. Um, and one of the things I wrote about in that essay is that, like, Gil Scott Heron's a guy who, who, like, no one really knows what to do with. We call him a god, you know, like a godfather of hip-hop, which he denied. You know, he was, in his lifetime, kept being like, don't call me that. <laughs> you know, you listen to Gil Scott Heron's music, and he's doing all of these different weird things. You know, it's, like, various different, and, and part of it's that it's, like, He's this kind of outlier that no one knows really what kind of box to fit in. To come back to the students thing. Yeah, I mean, it's like I do think that that some of them, you know, don't want to be like lectured about how Iggy Azalea or Miley Cyrus is simply just another iteration of what Blackface Minstrelsy was in the 1840s. And I think that they have a point there that it's like, you know, in something like a book like Love and Theft, which is a just a towering monumental work is like, I mean, one of the things that makes it so great is that it has that really rigorous historical specificity to it. You know, he's not making an argument that it's met empty metaphor that can be kind of stretched across American history. You know, he's writing about a very specific set of concerns. And, and cultural practices, as you said, you know, that are, I mean, it's a great book for folks who haven't read it. And I'm thinking, too, as you smartly pointed out, we have these ways that we have to develop a vocabulary and grammar for actually talking about race, culture, and the reproduction of racial ideologies, but then not being trapped by them. So you have the idea of the Black Atlantic, cultural right. syncreticism and borrowing, Africanisms in the, in the new world, quote-unquote, um, globalization, and all these different experiences and generational frames that people bring to their relationships with culture. But going back to the Miley Cyrus is the example. Thinking about Stuart Hall and actually trying to take you know, a rigorous understanding of race and racial ideologies and questions yeah. of semiotics, and then saying to the students, okay, it's interpretation matters, but let's look at the historical continuity of these images. 
Right. And that one can be ignorant of the culture they're reproducing while still being embedded within it. And when you actually see, especially with Miley Cyrus and that just cringeworthy moment on stage where she's you know sticking her tongue out and trying to twerk. And I always joke with folk, I don't know if twerking is an Africanism in America, but if it is, folks can keep it. I'm not going to pick that hill to die on. <laughs> I have no use for that dancing. But in terms of thinking about your own work and thinking about popular culture and race and the color line, again, I think you hit on something really good. And brilliant in a way, thinking about this particular historical moment. I, I call I call this Obama derangement syndrome. Mm-hmm. That the idea of the symbolic power of a black man and his family in the White House, when in reality he's a Rockefeller Republican. He's a neoliberal. Popular culture in this moment of we have a multicultural democracy that is in many ways under threat and under siege. We have the rise of the cultural cruelty and neoliberalism, and we have an on the face very diverse, again in quotation marks, because we're not talking about the quality of that representation, popular culture. It's really hard for folks, young people who were born in this moment, to negotiate what they're seeing because it's an odd mix of almost like the end of Reconstruction, like the second redemption, if you want to use that language, with all this hope that they've embodied about race, and they're scared to death about issues of class. And class inequality in the environment. So how does your work and your first book sort of think about popular music in the 60s and 70s? And what can it tell us about today? I mean, this is a huge issue. I mean, it's like, obviously, I I also think the way that, I mean, this is Americans, again, this sort of like kind of pathological unease that Americans have with talking about race is, you know, that I think been heightened under Obama, where everything has become a weirdly, and I don't think it's his fault, obviously, but it's Absolutely. like, he, it's, it's so much more, for whatever reason, though, I mean, obviously, there are tons of reasons, but it's like, you know, these conversations become more charged, again, is that the United States is also extremely bad about talking about social class, you know, it's like we, the myth of the classless society and sort of things like that. In terms of my work, trying to move away from ideas of, of black music and white music, mm-hmm. these kind of monolithic constructions, looking at the class dynamics in them. You know, that it's like this sort of idea that we have when we talk about the 60s. You know, we have this idea that put the Beatles and the Rolling Stones right next to each other, like they're, you know, like they both kind of came from the same place and everything, which they really didn't. You know, they came from like drastically different contexts. <laughs> like the Beatles and the, and the Rolling Stones have so little to do with each other, except for the fact that, you know, two Americans, they're both from England. England, they're both white, you know, which is like really crucial in that period. These sort of all sorts of different kind of like cultural differences between those groups in terms of subcultures that spawn them. And in England, it's fascinating because England is obviously class obsessed, you know, class becomes the marker. In England, the Beatles class background, the fact that Beatles are from Liverpool is remarked upon constantly in early Beatles company. And it doesn't cross over to the United States because in the 60s, you know, no one in the United States cares about what Liverpool is. You know, no one even knows what it is. But also, but, you know, on the flip side in the States, at a record label like Motown gets written about versus labels like Stax and, you know, Atlantic and stuff like that. The idea that, that Southern soul had this kind of racial authenticity to it that Motown didn't because of Motown's kind of proximity to to the pop market, you know, and like this idea that Barry Gordy was sort of this inherent accommodationist because of the fact that he was interested in, in you know, crossing over to the pop chart. Or, you know, the idea that when, when Aretha Franklin emerges, she's held up in some quarters as this kind of embodiment of kind of raw, hermetic blackness in a way that Diana Ross is considered this sort of inauthentic, uh, whatever, throw out your pejorative, when mm-hmm. in fact, you know, it's like, I mean, you look at the, the differences in sort of class between those two singers even, you know, it's like Diana Ross grew up in abject poverty. In the, in, in the slums of Detroit, Aretha Franklin's father was a celebrity. You know, Aretha Franklin grew up in, in rather 
inconsiderable privilege. You know, she was a, basically a stage child. She had her first recording contract when she was 14. She was signed to Columbia when she was 18. They bungled her career. But it's like, you know, this is like, and these are things that we tend to, when talking about American music, we tend to flatten out these differences between people because because of the fact that race is just the meta narrative that kind of guides discussions of popular music, whether it's the 1960s or, or whether it's today, it does a disservice to everyone. This sort of idea that like that circulated in the 60s that the reason that Aretha Franklin was so good at singing was because she was sort of in touch with some kind of like a metaphysical idea of pure unadulterated soul is is you know, obviously it's kind of magical thinking but it's also you know it discredits the fact that you know she worked incredibly hard to be that good of a singer it takes away from from technique removes these people from the sphere of artistry and the sphere of sort of intellect you know it, it naturalizes the way that everyone does everything both on the sort of white side and the black and side. that makes me think too i have a friend of mine who's a very successful writer and, he, and she happens to be African, Afro-Caribbean, actually. And it's this interesting tightrope you have to walk because we don't want to say that, quote-unquote, blackness isn't real. But we also don't want to play around, or that whiteness is a social construct, certainly is real. But we don't want to over-essentialize and say, yeah. you know what, these people naturally channel because of their arbitrary melanin count, this sort of artistry and aesthetic. Because, again, there's a real ugly history there in terms of, again, thinking about biological racism. But as she pointed out, she's like, yeah, I'm black and I'm from the Caribbean, but I work really hard at what I do. Yeah. I don't have magical powers. I just write a lot and I read a lot and I think really hard about my craft. And you're spot on in saying, yes, these cultural, um, our cultural legacies, we can talk about the blue sensibility, we can talk about history, and as we said, Africanisms that still live in America. But that having been said, people still have to work and they still have to develop that artistry because that also gets us to the question of soul. What is exactly. soul? Who has it? How can it be accessed? And the idea of the cool pose sort of closing out because I know you're under some time constraints. Number one, what are you listening to and what are you reading and where can folks find you online and what are some of your future projects? Man, well, I actually have been listening to a lot of Slater Kinney recently because I'm writing something about them. <laughs> In terms of hip-hop, it's like, I mean, I, I do sort of tend to skew towards the stuff that I, I liked when I was younger. Although, you know, in terms of, I, there is a lot of new stuff that I, that I like. So I've actually, I actually have a copy of Jeff Chang's new book that's sitting on my coffee table um, that I've been sort of flipping through. I've been reading his book, Who We Be. And how is it, and how is it compared to his first book? It's really good. It's not what I was expecting, uh, kind of going into it. It's, it's, it's a lot looser and sort of more discursive. I think I was expecting, like, I mean, I, I'm really enjoying it. I actually think that it could, it, it'll be a real boon to people who teach about this stuff because it's written in a way that's very kind of fun and playful and and obviously incredibly smart because you know Jeff's just he's a great writer you know and it's like and he has a real way of writing of writing about these like complicated issues in a way that is really you know easy to grasp i also have been reading actually reading a fair amount about reggae recently i think i have a feeling the next project i do is going to have a fair amount to do with that or really with just sort of jamaican popular music in sort of the post 60s era so i've been reading michael veal's book on dub and a, a couple of sort of like broader histories of, of jamaican music one of which is quite good lloyd bradley's book is reggae music which is oh. i think sort of the and are folks still sort of paying homage to dick hebdige's work I mean, I love Hebdige. I actually don't, you know, Veal's book is, the, the dub book is really, I mean, Veal's an ethnomusicologist, so his, he's coming at it from much more of sort of a straight ethno angle, so he's not really looking at dub as subculture, 
Um, and Bradley's book is it's much more he's it's much more journalistic. Where I have to just work is all over my my dissertation. I mean everything. I'm actually and you know I'm teaching bebop tomorrow in class, so I'm using Eric Lotz. Double the double time essay, which is all Hebdige. You know, it's all about bebop as subculture. Yeah, I mean, I kind of think of Hebdige. I think of that book in particular as like one of the few sort of like kind of perfect cultural studies books. You know, like I mean, it's just like it. You read that book and you're just like, yeah, this is it. This is <laughs> you're like you you've nailed what subculture is. Yeah, and you know, shameless plug for someone else's book who I really really like and I use in my class. It came out a few years ago. I'd rather hard Slash's book on b boy culture. Oh yeah, just yeah. In terms of the ethnography and communicating yeah. subculture and thinking about the difference between breaking and break dancing and the way that the voices of the the subjects come through. And it's also wonderful writing. Totally, totally. Yeah, his book. Mm-hmm. Also, his book on hip hop production. You know, making beats. His first book is the best book that's written i mean it's 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 shocking to me i mean to this day it's still really i think the only book length like really good book length tape massively consequential subject i mean this is like a problem i think in sort of kind of hip-hop discourse both popular discourse and scholarly discourse tends to really really overly focus on on lyrics and hip-hop you know this is something that um and there there really has not been enough work done on on sort of production aesthetics and 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 the way, you know, the massive amounts of this music that don't actually have to do with, with rapping, you know. That's right. I mean, they're also, I'm sure you've read it, too. You know, this is always the fun thing. We have fellow travelers going back and forth comparing books or uh, giving each other recommendations. Parodies of ownership. Yeah, About exactly. sort of borrowing and the law and copyright issues okay, yeah. in music and musical production is also a great read. Well, what are you teaching? Uh, where can folks find you? So I teach at the University of Virginia uh, in the Media Studies and American Studies departments. In terms of where to find me, uh, I'm on Twitter. <laughs> and what's your Twitter handle? At Jack Hamilton. Uh, there's an underscore between Jack and Hamilton. But yeah, I write regularly at Slate.com. I'm Slate's uh, pop critic, so uh, I tend to write a few things a month over there. I actually haven't written anything since the, the B.I.G. piece, but I've got something going up next week. So yeah, so usually you can find my, my writing there. And then I have a book that's uh, forthcoming in the somewhat distant future from Harvard University Press. It's supposed to be coming out in spring of 2016. So if people can uh, hold out for that long, that they can they can uh, read that when it comes out. Please do. You're, please. The, you're the action Bronson <laughs> of scholars. Yeah. People don't realize how long it takes for books to come out. Be like, when did you write that? Oh, five years ago. And, and that's really a challenge too for folks who do work in popular culture because what you're writing about has already changed by the time the book comes out. Yeah, for my you know for my dissertation, I did write about the '60s, so hopefully not too much will change with the '60s. As long as there aren't Doctor Who esque Terminator time travelers fucking right, exactly. up the timeline. But then that begs the question about paradoxes and would your book have been changed anyway because the past had been changed? But Jack, I want to thank you one more time for being so generous with your time with the podcast series here on We Are Respectable Negroes and ChaunceyDeVega.com. I mean, I learned a lot, and it's always great to talk about hip hop and Biggie and music culture, race, and everything else that we sort of touched upon. So I just want to thank you again. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. That was a fun conversation. Learned a lot. I just want to thank Jack Hamilton for taking the time to sit down and chat with the Chauncey Vegas show. Always great, as I like to say, to walk down that road with a fellow traveler and you're both reading from the same set of music, but you can improvise around each other. I was thinking about Big, and I alluded to this very briefly with Jack, is that you would think there'd be a heck of a lot more work, you know, critical scholarly work written about the life and times of the Notorious B.I.G. and his work and locating it 
within sort of this broader conversation about the black counterpublic, about the black public sphere, about anxieties, about lost black youth, about intergenerational black politics. And there's a few good books out there that cite Biggie's work, cite his songs, his lyrics. But there aren't, to my knowledge, and someone email me because I'd love to read it, any full-length academic treatments of Ready to Die and big subsequent work as well, all the stuff he did on mixtapes, Life After Death, um, the various other projects, you know, never mind the film that was made about his life, not a very good film, but it was an interesting film and it was an effort, to say the least, a decent effort uh, that failed. But I was thinking, I'm smiling here again, dating myself, thinking about this 20-year anniversary because music really is like popular culture. We live through it, we live by it, and a lot of it is just generational. And the example I always try to use when my classes on hip-hop and my seminars on hip-hop is my concern about these questions of taste. Right? Maybe I'm going all the way back to some of my training in terms of critical theory and thinking about habitus and experience and how culture circulates through and among the public and how we read meaning into it and the question of emotion and so on. Never mind Dick Hebdige's great work that Jack and I also talked about very briefly. He does a great job in cut and mix and other work, really nailing the Stuart Hall as well, never mind the essential Bordeaux, that right now there are some teenagers, just like I was a teenager some years ago, and you ask them, who's the greatest MC of all time? And they're going to rattle off a list of stuff that's just from the now because their experience is limited. And this paradox, they got the world at their fingertips, but they don't have anybody to give them any guidance. They're overwhelmed with information, but they're not given any context. So as I was saying a moment ago, my concern with sort of these questions of taste is that you need to know the difference between a Big Mac and filet mignon. And we got too many folk right now who just listen to commercial hip-hop or even underground hip-hop or stuff they find online, and they don't have that refined palette. And there's some really interesting good stuff out there. I mean, Kendrick Lamar, of course, Action Bronson, um, Killer Mike. You can think of some other folk who are making really interesting. Uh, Kid Cudi, of course, Ghostface Killer, if you haven't gotten Ghost's new album, his concept album, where he plays a superhero slash antihero who returns to the block, take it over, his version of the Punisher slash Ghostface has created. And as Jack and I talked about, you have some legacy MCs like Jay-Z that are grandfathered in, that sort of, you know, fans of just commercial hip-hop, of course, would still listen to. Well, you got so many folk out here who have not refined a palate. Um, you hear them on the bus. And I mean, some of the most pathetic things I've ever heard are in public transit, where we have the product of the 90s, these 90 babies, 2000s babies, who were trying to have quote-unquote ciphers. And if they had gone back to New York or anywhere in the East Coast, circa early 80s and mid 80s even late 70s with that mess somebody went knocked them upside the head and you just sit there and you shake your head and you're like oh my god this is some of the worst stuff i've ever heard and it's just sort of the lowering of standards across our society i me and gordon gartrell have had this conversation i say you can look at the decline of hip-hop the rise of sarah palin and the embrace of mediocrity and you can trace it all the way back to that moment when we started giving kids trophies for failing when we stopped keeping score in soccer games or we started embracing micro celebrity and selfies and the idea through reality tv show culture that everybody is great and what happens when instead of watching jordan play basketball you lower the standard and you say wow i can be jordan too and you lower the bar again and you lower the bar again and then you have sort of this radically democratizing rise of technology that allows anybody to participate in the creation of art and culture and of course art is a reflection of the technology that is used to make it so this radical democratizing through the internet the cheaply available consumer technology has some good upsides. Obviously, we're sitting here chatting on the podcast. All the cool stuff that can happen in terms of resistance, in terms of organizing, in terms of communicating. But it also has a downside that you lower the bar of entry so low and so pathetic that anybody with a 
basic amount of skill can get access to it. And then you commodify it, you process it, and you sell it. But again, there was a book written, I think it was in the 40s or 50s, probably maybe the 60s, somebody can look it up, called How to Write a Hit Song, and Pop Music is Just Mechanical Reproduction. Right? It's the culture industry 2.0, it's still here, reaching back to Adorno and their arguments. So upcoming episode, I had to sort of wax and wane there a little bit. I was thinking about our conversation in hip-hop and how we think about taste in music. So saw Top 5, I mentioned it before, last episode of the podcast, before the new year. And that was a great movie. I saw it again. I saw it twice with moms. I'm going to see it a third time. I've got a coupon. I'm going to use that to get in here, see that movie a third time for free. And there's nothing more awkward than being in a movie and there's a graphic sex scene, comedy or not. And everybody is laughing and your mother is laughing with you. That's how you know you have really grown up. Because I remember when I was about seven or eight and Eddie Murphy was on Saturday Night Live and he had that great skit on the trampoline where he's wearing a diaphragm. And I heard my parents laughing. And I came in and said, ooh, what's so funny? And my father's like, ah, look at that, it's funny. And my mother's like, that's too mature for you, go back to bed. And now moms and I are laughing about Cedric the Entertainer and Chris Rock having a threesome slash foursome with two women of low repute. Yes, I said low repute. Repute is one of my other favorite words along with lascivious. Again, not pronounced less vicious. Say it with me, lascivious. Another awkward moment in top five. Again, sharing all the business about my trip home to the Nutmeg State, made possible in part by the friends of the Chauncey DeVega Show, chaunceydevega.com. Thank you again. When you're sitting with your mom and two people are having sex in a movie, and it looked pretty good because that was my woman, Rosario. Lord have mercy, Rosario's a goddess. You know my crush about Rosario. God almighty. If God made a woman and made a woman in his image, as the ideal mate for a man like me, it would be Rosario. Okay. Had the vapors. I'm looking for the fanning couch. I'm trying to, to get my composure here. So there's a scene in the movie, and my mother says, that's not realistic. And I almost wanted to ask moms, tell me what realistic sex looks like, please. Thank goodness I didn't. So smiling is, I relay that story. I had a good time at Top 5. And of course, since we're talking about hip-hop, we have to do the whole Top 5, because in the movie, it's a trope. Every black person, brown person, fan of hip-hop, um, at some point in their life, has had to defend their List their tastes, their interests, and top five, the top five greatest MCs, groups, or other of all time. So I will just give you my top five. It does change from time to time. It's a lot easier to do top ten. And criteria, I guess, would be, of course, my own personal investment and taste in these groups. And we could talk about lyricism, metaphors, dexterity, storytelling ability, cadence, what we loosely call flow, their ability to summon metaphors to tell wonderful stories. So for me, here are my top five. And also given some weight to their importance in hip-hop as a culture, as music, in terms of its development, trajectory, and art. So number one, of course, would have to be Rakim, because Rakim is the very definition of an MC. Rakim made everyone before him obsolete, and he is the standard by which everyone after him should be judged, to borrow from Chappelle's observation about prior and the definition of genius. Now, once you get from number one, it gets a little muddy. Do you look at sort of pure MCs and the founding moments of hip-hop who are also creating the foundations of sort of style and form and East Coast hip-hop in terms of saying this is what hip-hop sounds like, this is what cadence and flow should be, and how do we innovate around it. So here's my four, however controversial that will be. I always put Big as number two. Some would put Pac. I go back and forth. I think Biggie is a better pure MC, uh, and for my eyes, a better storyteller. Pac was great at both, but Biggie's a better MC. That's just my taste. That's why it's called the top five. Then we got another toss-up. Do you then do, so we now we have Rakim, Big, Pac. 
Now, is it Nas or Jay-Z or Jay-Z or Nas? I know my list is sort of conventional, given my moment of birth. I'd have to say for longevity, for just impact, storytelling style, cadence, the man is a dynasty. Thinking about his career and one hit after another after another, Jay-Z, of course, had great album after great album after great album after great album. He was a New England Patriots there for a second. In terms of his run. So for me, it's Jay-Z, then, of course, Nas and Elmatic. Because if you think about Nas, he's another great what-if story. If Nas did not take that horrible detour when, after Illmatic, he quite frankly tried to reinvent himself a bit. I understand the stress of the artist. I understand that anxiety. And he did this whole sort of hybrid, confused album where it's part, you know, sort of thug nonsense, but mixed in with great songs like, you know, he's talking about what it's like to be a gun. And you have this tension, young, mature Nas, and you have all the stuff he had dropped on mixtapes. And then you have the second album, which is just a hot mess. I mean, it's one of the great missed opportunities. And then, of course, Nas tries to battle back with great albums like Stomatic. Then he has the unreleased quasi-mixtape that was released commercially. Then he has, you know, recently he's been pushing back again, trying to reestablish his trajectory. And that's why the documentary is such essential viewing. I mean, it's a lot of fun. So send me an email, chaunceyvega.com. You can hate on, complain my list. And then when you fill it out, you got Ghostface Killer, of course. You got Andre 3000. You've got Eminem. Eminem has to be on the list. And you have so many others that then become matters of taste and argument. I'll throw a curveball at folk. Cool G Rap should be in anybody's top 10, I would suggest. Are you doing a top 15? Cool G Rap has got to be on there. AZ should certainly be on the list. Maybe you want to fill it out if we're doing top 20 with Old Dirty Bastard. Interestingly enough, ODB is a pure MC, a pure storyteller, frenetic energy, a car accident waiting to happen, a superhero of sorts. And we'll talk about that story. That's the next installment here on the Chauncey Vegas show. So we're doing Biggie. Then the week after that, I'll be talking with the great Mickey Hess, who has a new book out about Old Dirty Bastard, his life, his experiences, his times. And and Mickey and I just chop it up. We have some really cool stories in common about hip-hop, about moments of loss and coming back to what you know, thinking about that moment when Old Dirty Bastard passed away, what was going on in his life and mine at the same time. My father had just passed away. He had also suffered a loss, too, when we both retreated to music. Uh, to start thinking about how we grounded ourselves. An old dirty bastard, I won't call him by his government name. We know him as Russell Jones, of course. Um, old dirty, all his names, Big Baby Jesus. Wu-Tang is for the children. Never forget that. Um, and I, I said in the podcast with Mickey, and I was in college, and Old Dirty's solo album came out, and my nickname was Old Dirty Bastard. And it's funny because it was from women who I was involved with, who liked me and who were friends or who I dated or who went on Space Mountain a few times with Chauncey DeVega. So I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing, but they said it with affection. Or maybe it was my frenetic, crazed energy that I channeled, old dirty bastard. But I wasn't going to collect the welfare in the limousine. So Mickey talks about tracking down old dirty's family, talking to them, how they feel about how he was memorialized, going around and talking to members of the Wu-Tang Clan and Old Dirty's friendship network and his friends from home and how Old Dirty loved to go to McDonald's and buy people food and go into Coney Island in the time that Old Dirty Bastard, before he went on to the MTV Awards, went and helped to lift a car off of a child. Old Dirty was a superhero, and just like with Big, sometimes those brightest stars, they just burn too bright, and eventually uh, they're snuffed out because they do burn so bright and so fast, and they give off all that heat that the rest of us are warmed by. So, next episode, Old Dirty Bastard, talking about it with Mickey Hess. So again, thank you for listening to the podcast known as the Chauncey to Vegas Show. Do be well, be happy, be good to each other, take care of your friends and your pets, and try to make the world a better place. And as I always say, thank you for tweeting, downloading, and sharing the podcast. 
It means a lot to me. We're growing. We're getting stronger. And it really is a labor of love. Next episode, next week on Thursday, again, trying to keep the debt schedule, we'll be dropping the interview with Mr. Mickey Hess about Old Dirty Bastard. So take care of yourself and be well. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 